So the, the idea is about how we might enhance life, uh, whether that's longer lifespans or greater immunity, greater increased abilities, and the biological and technological ways that we might enhance, so trans kind of beyond human uh, life. And I, I went to this conference um, because I'm interested in the science and faith conversation. And it was overwhelming to try to think, uh, all right, how as, as Christians do we think through an issue that is just so bizarre like this? Uh, and you had some people arguing, yeah, of course we should be for this because Christians should care about life and, and uh, ending suffering and whatever. And others are like, no, this is playing God. And, and you can see how Christians are kind of confused and maybe talking past one another. And then I go from that uh, to the following Monday to talk to my students uh, my Bible majors, I'm teaching a course on Genesis, and we're in Genesis 1. And so if transhumanism is about the next stage of evolution, uh, Genesis 1 is getting into creation, which is bringing up creation versus kind of early phases of evolution, and getting my students thinking about, okay, uh, what do we do with Genesis 1, this text about creation where it sounds like it takes place in seven days, but you've got uh, the majority, not all, but the majority of the scientific community saying, no, that's, there's no way that the earth is that young and that creation happened like that. So what are my students supposed to make of this? And how should we read the Bible in light of uh, the scientific consensus? Do we have to hold on to a young earth? Do we have to hold on to uh, what science says? Is it all up in the air? Um, I'm speaking uh, about this, Genesis 1, to Bible majors, and I've got a group of half uh, male, half females in this class. And so I've got this other issue going on about uh, women in ministry. Uh, so what, what should we be training our female Bible majors to do? Uh, are they to be expected to do more than pray in church? Can they be elders and preachers? How do we navigate Galatians 3? No male or female with 1 Timothy 2. I don't permit a woman to teach or have authority. Do gender roles even matter? Are these distinctions arbitrary? Are these social constructs? Or is there something uh, that is rooted in our nature from God? feeling the, uh, the, this is where I want you to be, like, oh, this is, this is, this is confusing and difficult. But when we think about gender roles, we can't help uh, at this point and um, where we are culturally to bring in issues about transgender kind of things, gender dysphoria. Uh, what do we do when someone says, uh, I, my anatomical sex is this, but I sense that my gender is the other? Do we find reality in our anatomical sex? Is it in how we feel or how we think? Is it neurological? How are Christians to navigate this? Uh, you can hardly bring up any theological issue uh, in the church today without somehow it, it coming back to the issue of what we do about uh, homosexuality as a church. Are we full-on support of this? Do we draw some lines? How do we be hospitable without being uh, fully accommodating? Is that even possible? Again, overwhelming kind of stuff. And this all gets tied uh, to so many other social issues. I just read a, uh, an article this morning um, about uh, why evangelicals were originally uh, for it was, um, the moves to take care of the environment and now why the majority of evangelicals uh, tend to be more skeptical about environmental policies. And how uh, very fascinatingly one of those moves was um, as people were concerned about the environment, it got connected to worries about overpopulation, which then got linked to uh, pro-abortion stuff. And so some evangelicals were like, whoa, anything pro-abortion we've got to back away from, which means we can't be pro-environment. The way we make decisions is fascinating. Um, 
And the way we forget how we made those decisions decades later is also uh, troublesome. So what do we do? Uh, pro-life, pro-choice, pro-life in all cases, what about the death penalty? Is it sometimes okay? Is it never okay? Always okay? Probably, probably not always okay. Um, uh, I mean, this is just difficult. What do we, how do we think about as Christians involved in any sort of death? The church has uh, recognized for centuries just war theory. There's an appropriate time to go to war. Others say, absolutely not. Uh, how can we practice turn the other cheek? Others are saying, how can we uh, not use every means at our disposal to stop Nazi Germany? What's the Christian response? What about nationalism? Do we kneel or not kneel? Romans 13 seems pro-government. Revelation, Babylon is Rome. All right, confusing. Alabama, Auburn. <laughs> that one is so easy. You have one team, one team associated with miracles. The other team who's coached by someone whose name sounds a lot like Satan. <laughs> It is. It is. Some of these are clearer than others. What's the church's role in racial reconciliation? How should we think about divorce and consumerism? It is overwhelming um, to uh, to kind of step back and think about the the various issues and how divisive they can be, and how. Um, how complex they are when you really get into them. Um, and then you add to that, don't worry, I'm not going to answer all these questions today. There's no way, and I'm not looking for answers to that today. Uh, if I had 15 extra minutes in class, I would be able to do it, but uh, they are sticklers around here. Um, but, but we can add to that other issues that make this that much more, um, more difficult. Is there one right Christian answer in all these cases? Do Christians have to believe this about Genesis 1? Do Christians have to believe this about women in ministry? Do Christians have to believe this about uh, what we do with, um, with gay marriage? Do Christians have to believe this about the death penalty? Is there one right answer? Is there places to agree to disagree? And if so, which of those areas we can agree to disagree on? Can we agree to disagree about the death penalty? but not about women in ministry? Can we agree to disagree about transgender issues, but not about divorce? Right? There's, we, we have all these issues, and we have so much division in the church, and we have a difficult time knowing this is a, uh, this is a matter of supreme importance. We cannot, we cannot um, budge on this issue, and this is a gray issue. Who makes those decisions? What criteria or resources should we use to deal with these issues? Just the Bible. Just give me the Bible. Okay. Well, most people on both sides of these issues can just take the Bible and argue them. What do we do with that? Okay. Uh, maybe we just need to use tradition. Okay, whose tradition? Great tradition of the Catholic Church? The Orthodox Churches? whatever uh, denomination of evangelical or fundamental church you come from, reformed churches, whose tradition and why? Maybe the spirit. We just, need, we just need to stop all this Bible wars 
and, and hone in on the Spirit. How well does that work? The Spirit is telling me this, but the Spirit is telling that person the opposite. Right? And how do we distinguish the Spirit of God from my own feelings? It's kind of strange sometimes how the Spirit of God seems to coincide so much with whatever uh, the, the kind of social popular view is. Okay, so is this the Spirit of God or is this something else? Should everyone have an equal voice or an equal vote in the matter? Does the brand new Christian, should they have as much to say about this as the seasoned veteran Christian? Does the theologian have the same amount of, uh, of say or vote uh, as someone who has never cracked a book on uh, scripture or theology? I mean, you see how kind of messy and difficult this all is. So, of course, I'm not going to answer all of these issues. Um, but I, I am wanting us to, to sense not only the difficulty, but the way in which uh, too often the people uh, who call themselves Christians are talking past one another in these issues. Uh, they're talking about this Bible verse and this one's on this Bible verse. This one's speaking about tradition and this one's speaking about their feelings of the Spirit. Um, and, and what do we do with that? Uh, so I am convinced, and I've had so many conversations with, with Lauren White, who will be here on Sunday, and uh, I think Matt is on board. It's kind of fun to bring uh, someone who's not uh, theologically trained, but who's really smart. I think he sees similarly, but we're kind of learning. Uh, that, that as Christians, we do need to find some, something that tethers us, um, something that maybe anchors us, um, so that we can have these conversations. We can know here's a framework by which to deal with these conversations. Uh, and that tethers maybe a bad word, but you know you put a dog on one of those little things you screw into the ground on the cable, and they can do laps. Well... <laughs> You know that there's certain boundaries that are okay for the dog, and then there's, so we're the dog in this situation. Sometimes uh, it can be helpful to say, here's our, here's our area that's Christian, when we're thinking through these conversations, and then there's places that are out of bounds. And it'll be helpful to, to work on identifying what's out of bounds and what's in bounds, um, so that Christians can know we can disagree on these issues, but when you go here, you're taking a step outside of the Christian faith. And that's important to know. Uh, my own sense from, um, from teaching at the university, uh, teaching freshmen and, and older, sometimes grad students, is that, um, is that there's no clear tethers or anchors. That there is, there is a sense of tethers and anchors, but it's not not entirely clear what those are or even why those are. Like, I, I'm pretty sure I've got to believe this, but I don't know why I've got to believe this. I, I, I know the Bible's important, but I'm not sure why. I, I'm pretty sure that I've got to believe in the resurrection, but I don't know why the resurrection is so important. I'm pretty sure I have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, but I, I'm not sure why I can argue that. And then that gets tied to some other things where I'm pretty sure because I've always been taught that marriage should be between a man and a woman, but 
I'm not sure why I think that or how that's related to the big story. Or, you know, I'm pretty sure uh, the whole sexual morality thing is just, doesn't matter anymore. Uh, that it's all up for grabs. But I don't know why I sense that anymore. Um, and so one of my strong desires is to help students find some way to be anchored and help them navigate in ways that are wise and informed and are rooted in the Christian faith. Um, and if that's true of students, I assume that they are coming out of, uh, of churches where that kind of vagueness is in the air. Uh, well, here we go. So we're out of seats. What <laughs> up, Matt? <laughs> but this class isn't only about these kind of naughty, K-N-O-T-T-Y, naughty issues um, that are difficult to untangle. Uh, this class is also designed to, to get us into the everyday, practical kind of issues that we deal with. Um, I don't know if any of you know G.K. Chesterton. He's this kind of ornery figure. He was like six foot four, um, 300 pounds, big old bushy mustache, turn of the 20th century, carried a sword cane. I mean, what a great uh, thing to carry around. Uh, he was this journalist, um, strongly Christian, um, but not, but he was this kind of button pusher. Uh, and he liked, I don't know that he necessarily liked pushing buttons, but that's what he did. And he would like to, he would typically, or one of his traits was he would make a claim that seemed kind of outlandish, and then he would argue why actually, in fact, it's quite sensible. So here's a quote from Chesterton that I like. This comes from his book, Heretics, 1905. He writes, there are some people, and I am one of them, who think that the most practical and important thing about a person is his view of the universe. There are some people, and I am one of them, who think that the most practical and important, practical and important thing about a person is his view of the universe. So Chesterton thinks that how we understand the big picture is not just this kind of theoretical thing that's disconnected from our life, but is both practical and important. And I wholeheartedly agree. And this class, as we're thinking um, through, and we'll get to what dramatic logic means, uh, I want to show that this is practical and important for not only these big issues, but for how we think about our role in our families, how we think about our vocation, uh, how we think about uh, our calling as Christians. This has big picture and small picture um, implications. So, why are we calling this class the dramatic logic of Scripture? Um, well, kind of two pieces of this. There's the drama piece and the logic piece. Um, dramatic, we kind of like the way it sounds, but we're actually using drama more in the sense of story. The dramatic logic of scripture. If we're thinking of, we might think of drama in three related parts. The big drama, the big story, so you may have heard language like meta-narrative, meta, big, narrative, story. Um, so part of this class is going to get us thinking about the big picture. So Chesterton's Your View of the Universe. Um, answering questions like, um, well, some of you know, but, but thinking Christianly about big questions. Who is God? What is God like? Who are we? What are we to be about? What's wrong with the world? 
how is it, how is the world made right? Um, and, and those kinds of things. What are we called to be about? Big picture issues. And then there is the related issue of the, um, what we might call the united drama of scripture. How does that big picture of scripture that we commonly might think of as creation, fall, restoration, with Jesus there in the middle, how does that big picture of Scripture tie into our big picture? Again, teaching freshmen, many of them know this. They know the basic sketch. But what I found is that because they lack a more robust understanding of these major pieces along the way, that basic sketch doesn't really show up in any sort of practical or important ways in their life. And so as, uh, as we move through this class, this first semester, this fall, uh, we're going to be going through this and, um, and kind of opening up and going a bit deeper in these issues. So we're not just going to hit creation and generically say it was good, uh, but, but open that up and think, what is being claimed here about creation and about God and about our role in it? Uh, in these thick ways, uh, that then bleed over into those practical and important areas of our lives. Uh, and so our class is basically going to go Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 3, story of Israel, slow down the story of Jesus, story of the church, and uh, where we're going beyond that. And then the third move of thinking about drama is our own story. I don't really want to say our own drama because, uh, well, obvious reasons. Um, some of you are familiar with, with N.T. Wright's idea of a, a five-act play or a six-act play. I love that analogy uh, where uh, we think about the big picture in a series of acts. Creation, Act 1, Fall, Act 2, Israel, Act 3, Jesus, Act 4, Church, Act 5, Restoration, Act 6. Act 5, the church, we've only got scene 1 in Scripture. We are currently, us, we, the church, are in scene 2 of Act 5. So as we're thinking about the big story and we're thinking about Scripture, we're also finding ourselves located in this big story. We are trying to faithfully live out our role in scene two of act five of God's big story. And I'm not using story, hopefully you're picking up like fiction. Yeah, Matt. Just when you get to stop today. Actually, yeah, I'm about to hit logic, so why don't I stop here on this part and then, yeah, what, what questions, you want to come up and raise some questions? Matt's going to be our uh, clarifier and instigator. <laughs> it's kind of an interesting a dual role. Like <laughs> yes. Well, my role in the class, this is why I agreed to teach the class, my role in the class is just to ask questions. Just to kind of, because it is a large class, and so sometimes they can be really kind of quiet. But here's one of the things I've, that, that Josh, Josh's setup has, has made me think about. You know, my day job is I'm a lit professor at Lipscomb. And when he uses the word story and drama, those, those mean special things to me. I know that in our, our normal non-English major lives, those two things are pretty much the same thing. 
And drama usually means a really emotional, messy story or a hot mess kind of a story. But one of the things that those words remind me of is that there's really a difference between a story, technical words for narrative, and the drama. They, they overlap, but they're not exactly the same. I can tell you a story, but if I'm going to give you a drama, I have to act it out. A drama is a thing that doesn't exist unless somebody is going through motions on some kind of a stage. It's a different kind of a story. And it's, it, 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 it communicates in different ways. Telling a story is a very different thing than acting in a play, as most of us remember. It can be extraordinarily uncomfortable for most of us, except my wife. But I think one of the things that, that Josh has brought up is something I'd like to, I like thinking about. And it's the difference between telling ourselves stories about the Bible and telling Bible stories over and over again, and then thinking about our dramatic, I'm using that term on purpose, our dramatic role in the drama of Scripture that's going on now. And, and to me, that's where, in one sense, the rubber meets the road, Absolutely. and words become deeds. That's the uncomfortable part. And, those are, and when you think about it that way, all of a sudden we have a frame for understanding all those touchy topics that we deal with in church. How is the church supposed to respond to this or that? How am I supposed to deal with the church family that I'm living in? How do we, how do we take our roles in Scripture and live that act out, enact, dramatize what we believe um, about those stories that we've read and heard all of our lives. And I think that's that's one of the things that attracted me to this class is, is that interesting difference and overlap between a story and a drama. It's much more comfortable to tell stories than it is to, to take a role yeah. But I think, and I think Josh would agree with me, that's part of what this class is going to ask us to think about, not only as individuals, but also, as he mentioned, in the life of the church's community. What's, what's our role as a community? That yeah, that was, that was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, I love, even your hand gestures were right. <laughs> Sometimes we did. <laughs> you put, you did story arm's length. You can tell stories safely. Yeah, but this is, this is um, taking our part in the drama, um, and which is a great transition to um, logic, which is not formal logic, but, but something about, we're, we're trying to get at the idea of how we learn to think along the lines of this story. We think through this story. Um, so if we're going to faithfully um, do our role, enact our role, and scene two, we have to know what's gone on before and where it's going so that we can think and act, maybe improvise in ways that are faithful with the larger story. Um, I, I didn't grow up Church of Christ, um, but I have come to really appreciate some things about Church of Christ deeply. And one of them is their uh, high view of Scripture and the importance of Scripture. 
Uh, and I think um, that is sometimes lacking in the other churches I, I uh, grew up in or have been exposed to. I think uh, that uh, with that strength comes this great opportunity uh, to, to learn then to not just know the stories, because Church of Christ often knows the stories, but to find ourselves in that story. And not just, you know, in this kind of imaginative way, but, but to go from that arm's distance to kind of, um, okay, this is getting ahead of where I'm going, so you're going to hear this analogy again next week. But, but we can, you wear glasses, you can take off your glasses and look at the lens. Right? You want your lens to be the right prescription. But you also need to put them on to see clearly. And sometimes I think that we've got great lenses. Clean, clear, and they're the right prescription. And yet, we sometimes fail to put them on and see through them. To look at our, ourselves, our lives, some of these big issues that we're facing. And so, Laura and I are going to, and Matt, are going to be thinking about how, how the drama, how we might see this as a lens that we put on and learn to see the world accordingly and, and look through particular issues uh, along those lines. Let's see my time here. Oh, good. Um, so let me give us, let me offer a, a practical, practical way in the next 10 minutes of doing this uh, this week, of kind of moving from um, of knowing something about the drama of Scripture, thinking about uh, how it might affect our own story and how we see ourselves in that. And that's with the Lord's Prayer. Uh, many of us, I guess, are familiar with this set of lenses. Uh, but there is a big difference between knowing the lenses of the Lord's Prayer and wearing them. Uh, there are several Christians throughout kind of tradition that have prayed this daily. I think uh, it's even prescribed in like a second century text to pray it three times a day. <coughs> three times a day. Not because it's magic. Not, not like if you say hocus pocus three times a day, you're going to twist God's arm and get what you want. But I think there was this recognition in this early Christian teaching and throughout Christian tradition that there can be something powerfully formative about saying this prayer, not in a rote way, Father, you know, just get it out of the way, earn your forgiveness or whatever it is, um, but rather saying it in a way daily that it starts to become a way of finding yourself uh, and making sense of, of your world. So this is my practice. Almost every day, I pray the Lord's Prayer slowly, and it has been, I would say, the single most transformative practice I've done uh, at least individual practice I've done. And uh, as I walk you through how I experience this, maybe you'll see what I'm talking about. And the invitation will be for you to do this as well uh, when you leave this week. Start out by saying, Father, obviously. And it was probably several years of saying, Father, every day in this prayer, before the reality of that began to sink in. So I didn't just say Father and move forward, but I said Father and struggled with that. Can I accept that God is my Father and He sees me as His Son? My initial reaction was almost to be, I mean, just no. How could I? How could I? I know how messed up I am. 
saying it again and again. Being informed by what Father means in this big picture, right? How has the Father revealed himself? So I take that step. And then how do I learn to let that sink into my own life? If you're thinking of Chesterton's practical and important ramifications of this, if my view of the universe is that at the heart of all reality is there is a being of love who lets me call him Father, that, that is huge for every single day of my life. Everything I do going forward, when I can let that one word sink in, is changed. So, for years, Father. Father. Man, that's hard. Some days I didn't even get past that because it was so difficult. And I have a really good dad. And even so, it's hard. But the more I do, the more I'm able to, to live my daily life from a sense of not guilt, not shame, not anxiety, but from a place of being loved. And just think about how that then shapes how I view my wife, my children, my students. Because my big picture is being shaped by this confession of God as Father. Father who art in heaven. All the stuff I've got going on right now, I'm reminded in the big picture there is a God who is in control, who's got his hands on the wheel, and I can trust him. Right? This isn't just kind of blind chance that's running things. There is a good God, and I can trust that he is acting and he is faithful. Hallowed be your name. As I seek to pray this, this is such an orienting part of the prayer. I have found or I have tried to accept that God is my Father and I am His child. And before I think about my own issues and my own desires and my own wants, this positions me to, to think, no, your name, not my name, not my own agenda. Before I get going, Father, your name be made holy and the way I treat my wife, and the way I act around my kids. May your name be made holy in the way I teach my class. I know that I want to get good reviews and I want to be a popular teacher, and, but, but more than that, Father, remind me that it's about your name being made holy in appropriate ways in the hearts and lives of these students. Your kingdom come. When I pray this, it's very similar to hallowed be your name, but here's where I, I ask may I be a participant in your kingdom. Right, not just your kingdom come, but, but may I faithfully live out your calling and live um, as, a, as someone uh, who is a servant in your kingdom. In my own life, my little individual life, in my relationship with my wife, my children, my colleagues, and you see how, I mean, you're beginning, I hope, if you don't already do this, to see how these things we might know, if we wear them, if we see through them, if we let them sink down, man, it has practical and important implications for how we do everything. Give us our daily bread. And my anxious worry about, do I need to teach overloads? How am I going to pay for the new breaks? How can my kids eat so much food and cost so much money? The center 
of all things is a God who knows what I need, who knows what I don't need, who knows what trials will shape my heart for good, and who reminds me that as I pray for my daily bread, I need to pray for the daily bread of others who are in difficult situations, who are truly hungry, who are truly in need, who are truly at the end of their rope in their finances, in their marriage, in their faith, in their health. And it orients me toward God and toward others. And then, in this kind of beautiful structure of the prayer, we come to forgive us. Man, for years, I felt like I needed to, to start out by saying, forgive me. And there's a, there's a place for that. Peter does this, oh, depart from me. Isaiah does this, I'm a man of unclean lips. But I think there's also a reminder that he is father before I say forgive me. He's not father, then I sin, and then i got to say forgive me, and then he's father again. He has been father before I ask. And so I ask in confidence. And as I do that, what I learned praying this for years Originally, it was forgive me, and I'm going to try to earn my forgiveness with making it right, or with at least beating myself up for whatever requisite amount of time I think is appropriate. But as I, I've learned to pray this prayer and accept free grace and mercy, and accept I'm forgiven, and I don't have to earn it because it's been earned for me, I remember when that hit me, and the next piece of the prayer that I used to always skip over, as we forgive others, took on new life. And I realized that there were people in my life who I would not forgive because I didn't think that they had earned it with the appropriate amount of penance. All right, they didn't show they were sorry enough, but they keep screwing up. They keep hurting me in the same ways. And I realized, no, I have been forgiven mercifully without earning it. And now I can extend that same forgiveness to others. doesn't mean that I put myself in a position to enable being a doormat, but it does mean that I don't have to hold that grudge or withhold forgiveness from them. Because I have learned who I am, who God is, and how He forgives me. And wouldn't you know it, there's practical and important implications for how I view people in my life. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Oh, God. I know who I am. And I know that I am weak. And that I'm going to go forward today. There's a good chance that I'm going to screw up hourly. And if you leave me alone, I'm going to screw up every minute. And in my weakness and in your grace, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. And so, this prayer that I might know but I might look at has this powerful, transformative, daily influence when the truth of the big story is worn and I see myself, I wear these lenses and I see myself, and I see my calling and I see my family, I see others in this way. And I seek to live, I seek to live within scene two of this act, of this drama, in ways that are faithful, in ways that uh, are logically coherent within this drama. So, thank you.
people pretending to be somebody else. But a lot of great writers from the Bible forward, including N.T. Wright and Richard Rohr, remind us that that's what script, that, that Christ, Christianity, our faith, calls us to live as sons and daughters of God. It calls us to a new life. And, and although on, on the one hand we can say, oh, that was kind of dramatic, Josh, and, and write it off because it's awkward. I don't think that's the appropriate response. It, it was dramatic. This is what it looks like when the script, that one piece of scripture that we call the Lord's Prayer, gets acted out in a life over time, and he comes to understand the role that scripture calls him to play. We, we, talk, we talk a lot about method acting. You know, I need to get into my role. We, we joke about people who do that. And we look down on people who do that because we think of them as thus being inauthentic. Don't trust actors. But the dramatic logic of Scripture in this course, I think, calls us to, to, to rethink and to flip the way we understand what acting means. What it means to take on a role as Christians called to a new life the stories in Scripture, the prayers in Scripture, if we're willing to look at them as, a, as if they were a dramatic script, a holy script, for how to move on this stage, the stage of our families, the stage of our occupations, the stage of our doubts, the stage of our fears, the stage of the world as we know it, that's what the this class wants to explore is, is what drama means for each and every one of us. We, we might not want to be drama people, but like it or not, we're called to play these roles. That, that, I mean, that's a, a beautiful and intimidating, and I'm going to say performance, and I, and I hope you understand this in the, in the best way possible. I'd rather say like an impact. We just got to witness a moment of what a life changed by Scripture can look like for each of us. So, so as you go forward, um, each week we're going to try to to give a little verse or scripture or something to take with you to 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 say in the morning to try to put on and look through. And so the obvious. Um, homework, whatever, um, would be the Lord's Prayer. Our challenge is to, to spend some time praying that. Get hung up on a word and wrestle with it. Uh, but try to do that on your commute or when you're exercising or if you're laying in bed at night. Um, all right. Go in peace. Thank you.